I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. If you've ever wondered where do public polls go to die, well, today we bring you the answer. They don't. They live on forever at the Roper Center. One of the things I love most about doing this podcast is the opportunity to talk with incredibly smart people in fields where, under normal circumstances, our paths might never cross. I just finished talking with one of them. Peter Enns is executive director of the Roper Center at Cornell University, where he's also an associate professor in the Department of Government. The amount of data housed at the Roper Center will blow your mind. It's the largest public opinion archive in the world, with some 25,000 public opinion polls and nearly every survey question ever asked in the U.S., more than 700,000 of them. And as you'll hear from Peter, this matters for all kinds of reasons, perhaps most importantly, to give us a clearest possible sense of how American views have evolved in big ways and really nuanced ways over time on our biggest issues, immigration, criminal justice, religion, politics, and more. We discussed all of these. More background on Peter. His personal specialty is criminal justice. He's author of Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. He also received a 2017 Emerging Scholar Award from the American Political Science Association, which is presented to the top scholar in the field within 10 years of his or her doctorate. Like I said, he's a smart fellow. I really think you'll like this conversation. But before we begin, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. What will the follow-up be from President Trump's State of the Union? What's next on immigration, infrastructure, and more? And what's in store for this year's congressional campaigns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, quote, Few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. And one other item before my conversation with Peter. Last week, I tweeted my great thanks to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It's a growing number, and I'm really grateful. Thank you. It makes a real difference in helping others find the podcast, and I'm not going to lie, the positive comments make me feel good. So if you like these conversations, you know my ask. I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, though, my parallel ask, if you don't like the conversations, just forget I ever mentioned it. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation on public opinion polling with Peter Enns. Peter, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. So let's start with the, the background to understand the insights we're going to discuss. Uh, I think it really helps to understand the, the context. Um, what is the Roper Center and how did it end up at Cornell? Sure. The Roper Center is the world's largest public opinion data archive. And this has been an archive of public opinion data that actually started in 1947 with Elmo Roper and has been collecting data, public opinion polls, ever since. And in November 2015, moved to Cornell University. And what we have is over almost 25,000 public opinion polls, uh, going back to the 1930s, 
surveys from around the world and also a, a data bank of almost every survey question ever asked in the United States. So that's over 700,000 survey questions. So to know what the public's thinking, what the public's attitudes are, the Roper Center has that collection of data archived. And so when you say all of those polls, that can't that's not just one polling agency. So there are myriad polling agencies. And at some point, they just decide, okay, we've kind of taken the new stuff that we can, we've made our headlines. Now let's give it over to the Roper Center for posterity. That's exactly right. So lots of data providers. Um, So these include uh, polls from the major news networks. um, Sometimes individual researchers conduct a, a scientific poll and submit their data. And then, you know, when, when a poll is done, especially if it's a major news network, they're interested in the public's views. They often run a story. Maybe uh, the news network shows the results of the polls. Um, but the one thing that happens if when they archive the data with us, the, the voice of the public lives on, right? It's not just that one story or that one broadcast. Researchers, students, uh, media going back to see what were the public's attitudes years ago it, in a sense, um, preserves the public's voice, and that's why so many, uh, so many of the major polling organizations are excited to send us their data. And who can access it? Who can, who can get at your data? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. So we're, um, we're at Cornell University, but the Roper Center itself is a nonprofit organization, and we're funded mostly through memberships. And so most universities have a membership, a lot of media organizations, non, nonprofit organizations. And so we, we try to keep um, our costs as low as possible to keep access um, as high as possible. And every now and then we'll get uh, we'll get a contacted by a researcher, somebody in media who doesn't have access, and we always try to help out and and share information to the extent we can. Um, but we have uh, about three hundred member uh, organizations that all get access to to the data, and uh, the website itself gets about a million hits a year. So it's it's pretty broad wow. in terms of total access. Yeah, it's got to be pretty robust. So how can you compare, and I want to ask you, of course, about the, you know, issues of the day and immigration and criminal justice and, and, and others and, you know, how what you're seeing in polling today compares over time. But I'm kind of fascinated by, um, you know, what you've got and, and how it works. How can we compare polling data over the years? I mean, haven't polling techniques and sophistication changed? And um, why isn't it just, you know, wh- why aren't we kind of talking apples and oranges when you compare an issue today and polling data today from, you know, 1980 or 1950 or, you know, 10 years ago even? Okay. So the the way we can make these overtime comparisons first if we're if we're talking about US polls, the data archived with the Roper Center are from uh the using probability-based national samples. And so these polls using the best now uh sometimes methods change. So it used to be all face-to-face polling and then landline then landline and cell and then maybe internet so the the methods change but the the science behind the probability sample has remained relatively consistent so each of the polls are based on the national samples and then the the second key is 
making sure the question wording is the same when making overtime comparisons. Because if the topic's the same, but the way the question's worded is different, if we observe a change in responses, we don't know was that because the question wording elicited a different response or because public opinion actually shifted. And so to me as a researcher, comparing identical question wording is, is the most important. And then you know, the component is maybe people are interpreting the issue differently, but that's precisely what the different responses indicate. And so imagine attitudes toward the death penalty have shifted over time. Well, what the public thinks about the death penalty, how they interpret the death penalty, but that's exactly what we're measuring when we see the percent supporting the death penalty declining in recent years. Okay, well, so um, I'm about to find out then, I guess, if I'm going down a right track or if uh, the, you know, some of the questions that I'm going to ask you are based on questions that maybe are being asked differently today than they were, uh, in this case, back in 1984. So I dug around, uh, and thank you, you know, you gave me the access to uh, um, the database so I could play around in there uh, a bit in, in prep for this conversation. And, you know, obviously, you know, the most, you know, the significant issue, I guess, right now in the news uh, in the in U.S. policy and public policy um, is immigration. And obviously it was, you know, the key factor uh, in the recent government shutdown. And, uh, you know, we're all standing by, uh, you know, for Fab 8 and what the, you know, will there be an agreement? What will it look like, et, et cetera? Um, so in digging through, there was a Newsweek, you know, I mean, there have been, you know, just incredible number of polls, obviously, on immigration and, and our sentiment, American sentiment towards immigration over the years. Um, and, and this one really jumped out. So Newsweek Gallup poll back in uh, June of 1984, and while Newsweek might not be quite the same publication that it was back then, um, Gallup is still, you know, obviously one of the major uh, polling organizations around the globe. Um, and, and so some of the questions and responses from 1984. Um, so one of the questions, please tell me whether you agree or disagree with each of the following statements about immigrants and immigration. This was from 1984. Uh, question, immigrants take the jobs of U.S. workers. 62% agree, 36% disagree, 3% don't know. Same year, many immigrants wind up on welfare and raise taxes for Americans. 59% agree, 34% disagree, 8% don't know. Some people say there are too many illegal immigrants living in this country for the authorities to arrest and deport them. Again, this is 1984. They feel we should have an amnesty to let most of them live here legally. Others say the government should do everything it can to arrest and deport those living in this country illegally. Which view comes closer to your own? 34% uh, want amnesty for those who are here. 55% back then wanted to arrest and deport. 10% don't know. Last one. I'm going to read you a list of issues and problems. After I read each one, please tell me if you think this issue is very important, fairly important, not too important, or not important in this country today. Illegal immigration to the U.S. Fifty-five to the U.S. Fifty-five percent felt it was very important. Twenty-nine fairly. Ten percent not too important. Three percent not at all, and three percent didn't know. I mean, these are from from you know eighty-four question after question, kind of you know very you know not not exactly pro-immigration, I wouldn't say. How different are our responses today? Yeah, so that's, that's a, a really, that's a terrific survey and really great question, what, what's gone on in the, you know, since that time period. And so going back to this idea of, of question wording, so you, 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 you're 
uh, quoting from this Gallup Newsweek poll in, in 84, there was a poll conducted also by Gallup and Newsweek again in 1990 that asked that, that first question you asked about, do immigrants take the jobs of U.S. workers? And interestingly, in that six-year period, so just from 84 to 1990, the percent of agreed dropped uh, from 62% agreeing that immigrants take jobs of U.S. workers in 1984 down to 53% in 1990. So that raises this question, well, okay, did sort of a did pro uh, or did, did immigration attitudes continue to shift in a more positive direction since 1990? And that specific question hasn't been asked since, but there's a couple other questions we can look at um, with, the, with the Roper Center data. And I'll, I'll give you an example, if you'd like, of, of one that I think is, is, is really quite illuminating. And this is a, a survey question asked in 1994, and it's then been asked um, a few other times since, the most recently in 2017. And so the question is asking whether immigrants today strengthen our country because of their hard work and talent, or immigrants today, are they a burden on our country because they take our jobs, housing, and health care? So you can see it's, a little, it's similar to that Gallup Newsweek question, but I wouldn't want to compare it directly because the question wordings change. But I can compare responses to that question in 94 and 2017. In 1994, 31% of the U.S. public responded that immigrants uh, are a strength in our country because of hard work and talents. And in 2017, that percentage more than doubled to 65% responding immigrants today strengthen our country because of their hard work and talents. Wow. So that's a stunning shift in that, in that period. The percent of the public offering the, the positive view toward immigration uh, more than doubling. Yeah, it, it it sure does. And, and interestingly, now I, I might be really getting into, you know, apples and oranges. So, you know, as the uh, Cornell professor, feel free to give me an F on, on this question. Um, but sim- relatedly, perhaps in that 84 Newsweek Gallup poll, um, and maybe you've seen this one or not, not the same wording as what you just said. Um, but one of their questions was, do you agree or disagree? Um Immigrants help improve our country with their different cultures and talents. Obviously, not the same wording that you just read, um, but to me, as a layperson, those it feels like it. The intent of the question is similar to what you just uh, read. And in '84, the answer was 61% agree, 35% disagree, uh, 4% don't know. So a, a, a positive sense that immigrants help improve our country with their different cultures and talents. So it's almost like, you know, again, you'll, you give me an F if I'm comparing, you know, questions erroneously. But it feels like, you know, boy, back in 84, while we had those negative, you know, there were those negative impressions that, you know, immigrants are taking our jobs, we, you know, need to uh, deport them, etc. Uh, yet, strong sense that they improve our country with their different cultures and talents. That then sounds like it went down in 94 only to then redouble and come back up in 2017. So I guess three questions. One, am I just confusing everything and comparing questions that shouldn't be compared? Two, um, how do you reconcile negative, you know, same same poll back in 84, um, re, you know, negative responses to our immigrants taking our jobs and should they be arrested and what should we do about them? Ver, but at the same poll, 
strong feelings that uh, um, you know they they help improve our country with their different cultures and talents. And then third question is the shift over time is there is this just natural is there an ebbing and flowing so sorry for the three-part question but uh um i'll remember my questions if you forget uh one of them yeah well the 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 first part of the the in one poll it's seeming like there's different views right so on the economic aspect of immigration there seemed to be sort of public concern and on the cultural side no this is a good thing and i think that's pretty pretty typical that any single issue, um, you know, depending on how we slice it, we can get different views. What tends to happen when we look at data over time is on any particular issue, the views change together. And what I mean by that is if sort of positive views of immigration and the economy, if that was around 30% in the 80s and then, you know, broadly starts increasing and gets maybe up to 60% in more recent times, if the cultural view of immigration, the cultural benefits was around 60% in, in the 1980s, if, I, if we were to ask that exact same worded question, given what I've seen with the economic questions, I would predict that would have support to, for that wording would also increase. So maybe it's at 75 or 80 percent. So that's that's me speculating. But it tends to be that it's totally reasonable for different members of the public to view different aspects of any policy issue or any issue differently. But that the global perspective, like support for immigration increases across all dimensions together. So it would be very unusual in data to see the public becoming more skeptical, let's say, about the cultural side of immigration and those potential benefits, but more positive about the economic benefits. Usually those move in tandem. I don't know if that... uh, if that makes sense as I explain it, or yeah, that, that, that does make sense, and it really makes me think about um, I'm going to pay even closer attention over the coming days and weeks on how the issues are uh, communicated and how the choices are communicated by um, you know by the politicians and by the leaders. It, you know, it, it you can see given what you're saying, you can see how uh, you know really highlighting the economic costs, let's say. Um, and and by the way, I mean you know there are all sorts of economic benefits to uh, um, to immigration as well, and so you know not, we're not getting into debate on that right now. But I could see how if the economic concerns are primary for some folks, you want to highlight that. Whereas if culturally the positive aspect of immigration continues to be seen positively, immigration is good for America. This is who we are. This is you know we're you know Statue of Liberty and and th- this is this is our our core uh, you know our, our persona. This is this is our culture. You would want to emphasize that, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how. Um, that gets communicated and how the, uh, you know, how that represents what, what we see in the polling. Am I kind of interpreting that right on how, how you could turn polling data and how, how we would expect to see polling data turned into how the issues are uh, framed? Absolutely. And, and political leaders are, are definitely doing that, trying, testing different messages and looking at different poll results. What aspect of the issue should they emphasize to elicit specific considerations in the public's mind. Uh, at the same time, if the public's moving in a more positive uh, direction on immigration in terms of their attitudes, 
all of those aspects are increasing together, but they're still going to be at different levels. There's always going to be some considerations that are viewed more positively and some more negatively. Okay, my last question on immigration, just because this this struck me, um, it, you know, given given all the discussion today on the wall. So again, from that 1984 Newsweek Gallup poll, do you think the United States could prevent illegal immigration by spending more in money and manpower to patrol our borders better? Or do you think that this wouldn't work or would be too expensive? Now, I understand, you know, spending more in money and manpower to patrol our borders better, that's not exactly, you know, the same as building a wall. That, you know, in fact, you could argue it's very different. But it's, it's directly to, you know, preventing people from, from, you know, coming into this country. And 33% said it could prevent. Um, 60% said wouldn't work too expensive. And 8% don't know. Um, do you have a sense of how that would work today? Is that do you read into that? Maybe that's an argument for the wall. Maybe maybe the argument is, yeah, you know, it's just spending more money and manpower to patrol our borders. You know, even back in 1984, people didn't think that was good enough. And that's another argument why we need to build a, a physical structure. Um, how, how do you interpret that uh, question from 84? And how do you think it plays out or would play out today? Yeah, I think. Um if the similar question, there'd be even less support. Looking at the data I've seen with uh, questions about building a wall, support does not seem to be high. And again, the shift over time seems to be uh, more pro, pro-immigrant in, in this country. Um, now, there's different aspects to emphasize. So safety versus cost. And again, as you pointed out, we can have a, lot, a long discussion on whether the wall would do either of you know what what, what yeah, the specific yeah. results would be but in terms yeah. of what politicians emphasize but my read of the data is the current um uh trump stance on immigration is is not only out of step with public opinion but out of step with the direction that public opinion has been going on immigration so it's it's, it's quite interesting to me that uh sort of how this policy debate is playing out because the public has been shifting over the decades in a more supportive view of immigration. And anytime public opinion is going in a particular direction, what we typically see is politicians following that. That is where the electoral incentives are, and we're not seeing that. So, so I think it's quite an interesting political decision. It is, and it's another argument for why elections matter and uh, getting out and voting matters, because uh, one of the key arguments, as I'm I'm sure you know, uh, from the right and from the, uh, you know, the, the controlled immigration crowd is, well, you know, that's what Americans voted for. There was no surprise about what Trump was saying, and that's what uh, electorally uh, folks vo- voted for, states voted for. And so uh, that's where we are, even though, to your point, p- polling data shows, uh, you know, that's not where the country is going. So uh, elections matter, and uh, getting out and voting, particularly if things like this uh, are, are important to you, uh, you know, really matters because all of a sudden uh, public policy can change. Uh, you know, or at least it's trying to change. Um, let me move on to a topic that I know you spend a great deal of your uh, professional time thinking about, and you, you know, just kind of raised it in a certain sense, this question of safety. Obviously, it goes beyond just uh, um, questions around immigration. Um, y- your book uh, is titled Incarceration Nation.
nation, how the United States became the most punitive democracy in the world. How did it? How did it, how did it become that way? Uh, that that is what the the book uh, aims to answer, and specifically. We've known for a while folks who study the criminal justice system, whether it's political scientists like myself or historians, sociologists, criminologists, that how the United States treats crime has changed. And so we've uh, instituted longer sentences, uh, mandatory minimum sentences, and certain crimes that used to carry probation now carry uh, you know, prison time. This has led to shifts among how prosecutors, uh, judges change. So there's been a political shift. There's been policy shifts. And what my book tries to unpack is, well, why did those shifts happen? Why did the policies change? Why, did, why was more money allocated toward prisons? Why were the sentencing laws changed? And what I show in the book is through really beginning in the 60s all the way through the 90s, public opinion was becoming more punitive. So the sort of tough-on-crime view of the public was increasing. And it was the political and the criminal justice system that responded to that. And we often, it's often portrayed in reverse, right? Um, politicians like Richard Nixon are held up as leading the tough-on-crime movement. And what I show is it was the opposite. They were responding to public opinion. And is that unique to criminal justice, did you find, or does that – can you extrapolate into other issues? Is it usually that way, or do you have to kind of go through issue by issue on, on you know, what, what's the cart and what's the horse, public opinion versus uh, public policy? Yeah, and of course these things are interrelated, right? Politics, uh, social conditions are complicated, and different forces influence each other. But what? Uh, but it, it, in the area of criminal justice, this following the changes in public opinion appears especially strong. And what seems to be the case is, on a lot of policy issues, um, there's liberal and conservative, or democratic and republican views that could both be implemented at the same time. Um, but they're different strategies. So maybe let's think of education policy. It might be uh, on the conservative side more support for things like school, school choice, charter schools, maybe a voucher system, and maybe on the liberal side where we should spend more on on teachers or maybe public pre-K. But both of those could be implemented right now. And in the, in the criminal justice and the crime situation, if the public gets more punitive, there's kind of the traditional well, let's deal with the roots of crime, maybe job training, social spending, more public services that take a long time to see the results of, or let's put more police on the street, let's have more arrests, let's build more prisons. The short-term solution, we had both Democrats and Republicans moving toward that short-term solution. So that is, in my view, what led to such a heightened response to the rising 
uh, public punitiveness in this country. And what are you seeing today? I mean, we, you know, you're seeing a, from the attorney general, uh, you know, wanting to uh, heighten criminalization of various, you know, minor areas that others feel are very minor, like marijuana and, and that sort of thing. Um, and yet we're also seeing on the other side, uh, I think, a real push against, um, you know, the, the sentencing and, and lengths of sentence and, and uh, required sentencing that's been imposed on uh, judges. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, changes, and I'm sure I'm mixing issues here, but uh, changes in the feeling uh, about the death penalty. Um, what, what struck me most recently was the, the other day there was a press briefing. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about the uh, school shootings this year by NBC's Peter Alexander. And is Sanders among the things that she said, uh, you know, in a kind of response that was a little bit all over the place. But one of the things that she said was, well, we're in the middle of a crime wave. Um, are we and do Americans feel that we're being victimized by crime? What, what's your take on where we stand on criminal justice today? The, it, it's certainly a complicated question, but a few a few key points. We're not in the middle of a crime wave. Crime has been decreasing um, pretty much from, since the late 90s. Um, violent crime, property crime, and there's ups and downs, and there's important variation in different cities that, that needs to be considered. But overall, the trajectory has been decreasing crime rates since the late 90s. What's interesting is since that time, the as shown in the book, public opinion has become less punitive. So we're still punitive as a country. But as I said before, when we were talking about immigration, to me, from a political perspective, it's opinion change that matters. And the public has moved in a less punitive direction as the crime rate has gone down. So the argument in the book is, well, we should see um, the political system, the criminal justice system responding to that. And for the most part, as you pointed out, Chris, that's exactly right. We see both Democrats and Republicans in Congress talking about the importance of criminal justice reform. We see states uh, changing um, their sentencing requirements, especially for some of the lower-level drug crimes, reducing sentencing. We see reforms, uh, the cash bail system being reformed. One of, one of the really important examples is Rikers Island the discussion of closing Rikers Island. And so the debate now is the, the proposal that's been endorsed has been closing it in 10 years. And the debate is, well, that's not soon enough. Um, well, this is, you know, one of the most uh, prominent uh, prisons, you know, featured on pretty regularly on the TV show Law and Order. And the discussion is now how quickly to close Rikers Island. And so we're still, we have a very punitive criminal justice system in the United States. That's important. It's a, it's a very problematic system in the sense that it treats, um, you know, different social socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial groups differently. But in terms of does it appear to be following public opinion? Absolutely. The debates we're having today weren't even, couldn't even be considered in the, in, the in the mid-1990s when the public was at its most punitive. So this is another example where if we focus on how public opinion is moving, Trump and, and Sessions seem to be completely out of step with the direction that public opinion is going. I know that you could talk about criminal justice for uh, hours. It's uh, it's your topic, and uh, anyhow, that's fascinating stuff and, and important to keep watching on. 
Uh, let me move to another topic, one more social topic, and then uh, just to close out with a political question. Um, religion. Uh, and in particular, evangelicals. Uh, we have all read lately about uh, the massive shift in belief that moral character um, matters uh, for public officials' fitness to, under Trump, now feeling that it's not such a big deal. Um, you know, the headline the, the other day, evangel- evangelical leader Tony Perkins said, Trump deserves a mulligan for his alleged Stormy Daniels affair. Is it possible when you look at the data and you look at the polling, is it possible to understand without without being cynical why evangelicals are being in these cases uh, so malleable? Is there anything in the historical polling data that would have indicated that this was possible? I, I mean, I guess every everybody's entitled to their own view, but it it. it it's not consistent with the public. I, I looked up a uh, a recent Gallup poll uh, from 2017, May 2017, and it asked about um, uh, married men and women having an affair, and 88% of the public indicated they felt that was morally wrong. And I looked at that question has been asked a couple times in recent years, and it's pretty much hovered between about 88 and 91, 92% saying it's morally wrong. And so the public seems to have a a pretty consistent and uh, sort of overwhelmingly view that that, uh, an affair uh, in this type of case now would be morally wrong. But to your question, do you give give the... um, the the president a pass if this actually happened um and th- that to me i think is you know just uh, it's it's some people are going to do that some aren't yes certainly but have you i mean we have seen i and i should have i don't have it in front of me but i i sure think that there was data that i saw recently that um uh, around this question of uh, does moral character matter for uh, fitness in public office? And I believe, and, and may, maybe I have the data wrong, and if you know that I do, you know, just, just let me know, please. But I, I believe that that really shifted from yes, it matters to no, it doesn't matter so much among uh, evangelicals, and that there's been just a real shift, um, you know, under Trump, and, and as as more of the uh, agenda policy issues, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, right to life and things like that, that uh, are important to you know evangelicals among others. But as that agenda has been pushed from a policy point of view, the the views, the stated views uh, of things like character and and moral fitness um, seem to have changed. One, are you you know are you seeing that? And two historically was there is there anything that you would think to compare that to where groups have you know maybe gone against stated core beliefs because from a policy point of view they they seem to see things happening that they like and i guess what does that say about you know do we say what we want to believe as opposed to what we're willing to accept and and you know how much do we put into what gets said in public opinion polls and and all of that so i guess first just you know is is this something that you've seen historically is there another thing to you know another point or another issue to compare this to well 
to the uh, the, I I have seen this the data you're you're talking about where how important is moral character to you know evaluating a president or a political leader and some decline there. I think it's also important to keep in mind some some Pew surveys throughout uh, from February uh, of last year through December show that approval of Trump has still declined among evangelical Protestants. So even this group, uh, the the percent approval has gone from 78 to 61 percent. So a decline of 17 percent in a year among evangelicals, that's a pretty substantial decrease. In terms of thinking about this historically, what's going on, I think it has more to do with the two-party system and the high level of partisanship we have right now in the United States. And so I think it has more to do with picking who you support, Republican president or not, and then justifying the reasons. And that's what I think explains some of this. Uh, It's almost like rooting for two people if they're watching, let's say, a, a sporting event, and they're rooting for opposite teams. They're they're sort of seeing did the ref make a good call or not differently, right? Yeah. So how you feel about Tom Brady all depends on whether you like the New England Patriots. Exactly. And so I think there's our political system essentially requires you know the the presidential election it comes down to a Democrat or Republican, and so it's one or the other. And so if somebody's um, been a, a lifelong Republican or lifelong Democrat, they, you know, a lot of things can happen before they shift their views. And people are shifting. And that, that, that the Pew data from last year showing that uh, evangelical Protestants support declining 17%, there are really important shifts going on. But at the same time, it's not surprising that some people might be changing how important they think certain issues are to match their their pre-existing views that's something we 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 do all all, all the time um, you know just as basic psychology says we're going to we're going to we're going to do that to avoid cognitive dissonance um, so so both patterns are are going on we're seeing actual shift away from support for Trump because of some of these issues and we see some some parts of the public saying, well, they actually don't view that particular, uh, let's say, moral leadership as as, as important. Sadly, I, I know all too well about avoiding cognitive dissonance. And uh, if you can, you know, help me with that personal issue, uh, you know, we, we, we can talk offline. That would be, you know, that'd be really helpful if you can uh, help me take care of that. Let, let me close out with a political question and, and one of the key political questions with it, certainly within the Democratic uh, Party and among Democrats over the last uh, couple of weeks. And that is, did they cave too quickly? And of course, this is around the government shutdown. Your data was recently posted on Political Wire uh, with Tegan. And uh, that data addressed the question of who does the U.S. public think is mainly responsible for a a possible government shutdown. And you compared uh, March 13th of 2011. That was when there was nearly a shutdown, but it it didn't occur. And I guess polling data from there that showed 31 percent thought that Obama was uh, mainly responsible and 45 percent thought that Republicans in Congress were uh, mainly responsible. Cut to January 18th of this year, 
28% felt Democrats in Congress were mainly responsible, while 48% uh, that you cite thought that Trump and Republicans were mainly responsible. Um, did, so, you know, it kind of goes to that, you know, one of the core questions, did, did the Democrats cave too quickly, um, or is there something else that you take from this data, um, you know, something that, that doesn't have to do with that? Yeah, I think I th- that's a tough question because we, we really don't know. We don't know what the, the counterfactual scenario was. But the way I read these data, I think from a strategic perspective, the Democrats' approach was was really quite savvy because this is going into the, the, the possible shutdown and the public is assigning much more blame to, Trump's, to Trump and Republicans in Congress. And again, that, as you mentioned, that was a say that was happened in 2011 and in other survey data with slightly different question wording, really in between that period, the public's held Republicans more responsible either when there's been a shutdown or a threat of a shutdown. And so to have this shutdown, but have it be short enough where the, I think the, the Democrats are hoping we're going to get it, we're going to shut things down, we're going to try and use that to leverage uh, the, the policies we want, but not hold it so long where that blame attribution is going to shift. And mm. so if the, now the, some are going to say, well, the, from a strategic perspective, the Democrats didn't actually get everything they wanted, and that's a, a pretty yep. important point. At the same time, if in the public's mind, Trump and Republicans are going to be continued to be viewed as more responsible for any potential shutdowns, Democrats maintained, you might say, that sort of the higher ground or the public's goodwill through the ordeal. Now, I haven't seen data census shutdown, so we'll see. But my my best guess is this was short enough where if the threat of an impending shutdown comes again in, in a couple of weeks, that the public, more of the public would view that as uh, Trump and Republicans in Congress being responsible for that. So the, it may be that the Democrats played this just right to show the threat, show they are willing to do this, but maintain uh, a more positive perspective uh, among the public. Yet yet something else to keep an eye on, uh, which we will. Peter, thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, wow, what an incredible um, set of data and resources and uh, um, information that you have and uh, that the Roper Center has. And uh, I certainly hope folks um, take advantage of it. But uh, thank you for your time and, and your analysis. Well, thank you, Chris. Really enjoyed the conversation. That was my conversation with Peter Enns. As you can see, he knows polling and data and trends, and he knows how to help make sense of it all. And can you believe how much data the Roper Center has? My thanks to Peter for the conversation and to you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.